You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to Encyclopedia on your Sunday afternoon. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species, who will be back next week from 1 p.m. You can find out more about Freedom of Species by heading to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to their program page where you can find their social media, subscribe to their podcast, and uh, get in contact with them if you wish. You can also do the same for us. The Encyclopedia program page is also there on 3CR. Uh, my name is Nick, and on the program this afternoon, uh, we'll be play, uh, playing for you one of the panels uh, that I was a part of, um, the Australian Psychedelic Society panel from Rainbow Serpent Festival, um, just a month and a half ago. Uh, there are two more panels on the way, still being processed, um, but we've got one for you this afternoon, so I thought that would be a nice little little thing for you. Um, it, it is uh, interesting times at the moment. We're two weeks uh, away from the New South Wales state election. Uh, New South Wales, uh, the state that has banned music festivals, apparently. Uh, it was uh, about two weeks ago, I was in Sydney for the Don't Kill Live Music Rally, uh, which was um, put on uh, because of the uh, Berejikli and New South Wales government's crackdown on music festivals. Uh, and, and all of that was catalyzed by five deaths that have happened uh, over the at festivals at music festivals over the past six months um, and those deaths or it's it's possible that all of them could have been avoided if our governments took a uh, more evidence informed approach to their drug policy instead of the ideological uh, whimpery that we see from the governments at the moment and it's not just New South Wales. Victoria does it too. New South Wales have just gone uh, full hog for whatever reason. Um, I, guess, <laughs> I guess they think that's going to win them some votes. I don't really know. It's going to be an interesting one. I, I've been speaking with a few people and apparently it's um, the New South Wales uh, election could, could go uh, either way. Maybe a hung parliament as well. Uh, so anyway, we'll keep our eye on that. Very interested to see what's going to happen. Uh, also coming up, uh, while, I'm, while I'm talking about things that are on the way. Uh, May the 12th, which is Mother's Day, uh, EGA Garden State's Entheogenesis Australis will be taking over Springvale Town Hall, and we will be broadcasting live from there as well, broadcasting one of the panels, um, but it will be a whole afternoon of events. Take your mum along there. You can buy tickets by heading to the website entheogenesis.org or follow the links on social media. we're still putting together the um, the, the panel um, that I'll be hosting and broadcasting on in Psychedelia, um, but the title of it is The Thin Green Line. And we're going to be looking at how um, our prohibition laws have affected uh, an impact on the plants um, that, I mean, all psychoactive substances, all drugs, all medicines originated from, just about. I mean, there's some that you can get from animals and other biological products but you know the ideas we synthesize things now but the ideas the original ideas came from these these plants for the most part and fungi a little bit as well and um 
uh, we're going to be exploring how prohibition has um, captured these plants in its in its net, in its ever widening net, uh, a net that was even widened to include, uh, and this is in Victoria, to include books and information about growing some of these plants. Uh, of course, the uh, intention of the Victorian government, as they stated in Hansard, this was about three years ago when they introduced this book ban. Uh, the intention, of course, they said, was to stop um, stop uh, people distributing uh, material uh, with information on man manufacturing ice. You know, it's always about ice. But um, what the law actually says and what it essentially bans is um i mean if you know high times the magazine the cannabis magazine cannabis culture magazine uh sometimes there might be growing tips in there essentially that magazine and everything else in it would be banned would be considered a um an illicit uh book because it has information on growing cannabis in there but this also extends to any other kind of plant that is captured under the um almost um, unfathomably large scope of modern prohibition. So that's what we're going to be exploring at EGA Garden State. Sunday, May 12th, tickets are on sale. Entheogenesis.org is the uh, place to go find them out, and we will be broadcasting uh, live from there as well. Uh, on the program this afternoon, the panel from Rainbow Serpent Festival was the uh, Australian Psychedelic Society panel uh, with Martin Williams from PRISM, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, and Melissa Warner uh, talking about the launch of Mind Medicine Australia. And that launch happened uh, just a few weeks ago with Professor David Nutt from the UK, who you also heard on the program a couple of weeks ago, um, helping to launch that. Uh, and uh, oh, let's, I mean, I suppose we should just get stuck into it. You're listening to Psychedelia on 3CR. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. It's fantastic to, uh, to have you here, and uh, thanks for um, coming to listen to our story, particularly in the heat, which is um, obviously much more comfortable than yesterday, but still a little bit taxing. But lovely to see you all here. Thank you. Can you guys hear me okay? Yep, sweet. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll just sort of riff because I haven't really... I'm not doing slides or anything, so I hope you don't mind that, but I hope it sort of starts um, a conversation. Uh, and we're very, very happy to take questions at the end. And in fact, the, the, the shorter I riff, then the more time I'll have for questions. So let's, let's go with that. Um, I thought I'd just give a little bit of the background, you know, the history to, um, to where we're at now. I think the timing of this conversation is, is pretty much perfect because we're very much at this sort of right at the nexus of, um, of um, counterculture and mainstream and I think both of these concepts need to be explored a lot because um, clearly we've been counterculture for quite some time now although the prehistory of psychedelic research and practice was very much within the within the sort of the the mainstream culture and now we're, we're really finding ourselves in a very exciting um, stage whereby it looks as if we're knocking, pretty much knocking at the door of, of mainstream. And that's got attendant uh, risks as well as the benefits. So I think we need to, to be aware of that. And the more we have these kind of conversations, then I think the, the better we'll all be able to navigate the, uh, the path forward. So the sort of the, the prehistory to this research effort is, um, is Entheogenesis Australis, EGA. Uh, that was started, it came out of the, uh, in fact, the Northern Rivers um, 
community uh, back around 2002, 2003, and uh, EGA started to um, started out by organising conferences every year from 2004 onwards, which brought together people who were interested in the many, many facets of psychedelics. Effectively, whether it was uh, plant culture and history, whether it was, well, ethnobotany, whether it was uh, research, whether it was contemporary art, whether it was uh, the music culture, anything else. So we really brought people in from many, many backgrounds. Um, and over a period of about, uh, let's say, eight to nine years, we had conferences every every year. We uh, started out in the outdoor space. We had uh, two to three conferences um, in within Melbourne CBD itself, generally at the Uni of Melbourne. I apologise if you already know this history, so... Um, um, just bear with me for going over it again, but um, but at that time I think we grew the the awareness of um, of psychedelic culture and the potential for psychedelic therapeutic research as well and clinical practice uh, over that time, and that really um, sort of culminated in a in a conference in 2010 when Rick Doblin from the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies came over from the U.S. as our guest. We had a we had a little um, forum afterwards, and we really felt that in Australia we had the potential to to get in um, to start research to try and change things so that we could eventually move towards clinical practice. I hope that um, that you will. If you don't agree directly, then you at least would be open to the argument that psychedelic psychotherapy has a potential um, part to play in uh, in mental health treatment in Australia and and around the world. Uh, so I'll sort of start with that as a premise. Okay, so I'm very happy to to converse over that later, but I'll just sort of take that as more or less a um, something that we we probably generally agree upon. I'm happy to say that the research that's been taking place in the meantime has has reinforced and supported that that contention. Uh, so from 2011, we um, we decided to set up a new organisation, Prism Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, um, and many of you will be aware of that history because I've spoken about it a couple of times in the last few years here at here at uh, Rainbow, um, but. At that time, I feel that we were still very much part of the counterculture, and that the whole idea of psychedelic medical research and practice was uh, was not the sort of thing you would bring up at a, at a at a at the dinner table, for example, or with your family, or just in in company that you didn't know well. Um, and so, very much uh, in in the intervening time, so between 2011 and 2016, we had a couple of cracks at getting uh, um, research proposals um, put to ethics committees in Australia, both in Melbourne. Um, both were knocked back, one by the Ethics Committee itself and the other actually by the university administration because it just didn't want to didn't want to be bothered with the risk of um, promoting psychedelic research, which they actually stated uh, wrongly, I have to say, was promoting illegal activity. Uh, it's it's stated perfectly clearly in the schedules, the Schedule 9, which is the highest level of restriction of uh, psychedelic drugs or drugs generally in Australia, that um, these drugs can be, can be used for, in research, in clinical and medical research. Um, but that was overlooked by the university at that time. I'm happy to name and shame it was Deakin University in, uh, in Victoria. I hope they will live to regret their, um, the error and their, their uh, lack of wisdom in that decision.
Um, but really things have come around and I feel that I've, I've sort of likened it from time to time as sort of starting to ride the crest of a wave which is obviously has its origins in other places so like no wave suddenly crashes on the shores of Australia without having um, having started somewhere else and so um, we are the, the great beneficiaries of, um, of the preliminary steps that have been uh, happening over quite a long period of time. Uh, pr primarily in the US, but also significantly in Switzerland, uh, in Israel to a degree, um, in the UK and uh, Canada in particular. And, uh, and so what that has really done in the meantime has brought around the public discourse, um, the conversation, so that psychedelics gradually, um, but increasingly now, have, have been demystified and destigmatized. Uh, as more and more people are just coming to realise that uh, the word psychedelic is a simply, you know, it's a very non-threatening, quite innocent word. It just means mind manifesting. And anybody, as I would hope a few people in this audience might uh, have, have uh, experienced, um, there's a certain mind manifesting element to the psychedelic experience. And so that's really what it's all about. And that, that really is the origin also of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. And so the, the conversation has been started overseas. Australia, unfortunately, has been rather late to come to the party, um, but the party seems to be starting now, I'm happy to say. So within the last uh, year, um, pretty much as a, very much as a consequence of um, the EGA 2017 uh, conference we had out in the, uh, in sort of uh, near Eildon, northeastern Victoria, um, that really brought together um, some clinicians who are working very much at the coalface of mental health uh, practice, and these people are with us, uh, two of them are with us in the audience today, and, um, and also some funding partners who were very interested to, to support psychedelic medical research because they already had become convinced of the potential. And so it seemed to me that the stars were aligning really quite beautifully. And uh, although our initial interest had been in, um, in studying MDMA for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and those, that had been the theme of our, of our first uh, two efforts to get clinical research underway in Australia, um, it has ended up being psilocybin, which is something that I'm sure is very near and dear to, to many of us, um, as, uh, as an adjunct to psychotherapy for people um, facing um, end-of-life anxiety and depression. And so it's been, uh, it's been quite an intense um, year of, of work to, uh, to work towards getting the protocol formulated, uh, get that approved by the Ethics Committee of the, uh, the uh, excuse me, the hospital in Melbourne where uh, the, the uh, research was planned to take place. And then we've been moving gradually through the state and then soon to be the federal levels of, uh, of approval. But I, I'm happy to say that we're very, very close now. Um, yeah. So I think the, um, the way ahead now is to get the research underway. It's going to take uh, a good couple of years for this to, to be completed and then communicated. Um, and during that time, I think I can comfortably say that this conversation will continue to evolve so that um, we're less and less a part of the counterculture and we're more and more representing um, the, the mainstream discussion. Now, the mainstreaming of psychedelics has become quite an interesting theme and rather a contentious theme of conversation globally. And I don't know who uh, among, here, uh, among us here has, uh, has actually taken part actively in this conversation, but certainly there are, there are plenty of people who um, 
have been involved in the psychedelic space on a number of levels for a number of years who, um, quite frankly, uh, can't really see the merit in bringing psychedelics into the mainstream. Um, and I think uh, it's, this, is a, this is a topic that uh, really we, we ought to be thinking very carefully about because it's something that we, we can all contribute to. And for those people who do have significant reservations about bringing, um, bringing psychedelics into the more public um, discourse and ultimately we hope to have them accepted um, within, the, within the sort of the framework of mainstream medicine, um, I really feel that we need to uh, listen to those voices and, and very carefully take into consideration what they have to say. Um, and so I would encourage you, particularly right now and during this, during this uh, panel, to um, please to air any concerns that you might have. Um, one thing that I guess I can say is that mainstreaming is likely to involve, unfortunately, we, we probably, a lot of us would hate this concept, but it ultimately will involve the commercialization in some way of psychedelic um, clinical practice. Now, whether that involves some sort of um, protection of IP, of intellectual property, whether it just simply involves bringing um, the medical application into the public health system, which I would, which I would suggest is a, is a very reasonable and hopefully very palatable way to go forward. Um, nonetheless, I think that uh, there's plenty of potential for um, A, psychedelics to have a place, B, for them to be um, broadly, widely and very um, positively applied, adopted uh, in our medical model. And I hope that, uh, yeah, I hope that the conversation continues in a respectful and positive, positive manner. So I'll leave it at there for the moment. Um, I believe that Melissa will be uh, up in a sec to, to uh, continue uh, what I've been mentioning and sort of talk about a couple of new developments as well. Uh, and I look very much uh, forward to, to having the conversation uh, as, the, as the panel um, concludes. So thank you very much for your time and your interest. Before you finish up, Martin, because uh, I know it's a question that was burning around the social media pages when the uh, reporting of the psilocybin tri trial came out and people noticed that word synthetic, synthetic psilocybin, and people got very upset. Can you explain to us what synthetic psilocybin is and why a synth synthesized version is used in research? Hands up who's upset by the concept of synthetic psilocybin. Cool. Um, one of the one of the one of the the realities of clinical research in humans is that any any drug that's given to humans must be um, produced by what's according to the the framework of what's called um, good manufacturing practice. And so this is the whether we like it or not, this is the standard medical model for um, having new drugs, any new drugs approved for for clinical use. Um, and unfortunately, um, harvesting, even cultivation, which is difficult enough, but cultivation, harvesting, extraction and purification of psilocybin from, from raw material is not a permissible way to, to um, obtain psilocybin for these clinical trials. So that's just the unfortunate reality. So we have to, we have to make that compromise at this stage um, to, uh, to use psilocybin, which has been synthesized in a, a 
pharmaceutical facility which has been approved. It's an extremely expensive process to have a facility such as a, a laboratory approved for good manufacturing practice. Um, ultimately, I guess we would hope, uh, and this is something that I can't really, can't really comment on to any great degree right now, is that the current, the current model of mainstreaming psychedelics for medical application will involve legalization and incorporation of the drugs into the, into the framework that already exists. It'll involve the rescheduling of psilocybin and potentially mushrooms, the raw material themselves, which I fervently and deeply hope will take place, into a less restrictive category of regu regulation. So synthetic psilocybin is um, chemically identical to psilocybin that would be extracted from um, the raw um, material, from the raw biomaterial. Um, one advantage of using synthetic psilocybin is that um, it can be produced as a pure product which can be dosed accurately and its therapeutic effects can be characterized very, very carefully and accurately. The raw material or, or psilocybin that is extracted and purified from mushrooms is likely con to contain a couple of the precursors or the intermediate compounds um, in the biosynthesis in the mushroom of psilocybin, and those are called biocystin and norbiocystin. And they simply differ from psilocybin in the, uh, the lack of either one or both of the methyl groups, which are the two, two little um, add, uh, end bits on the psilocybin molecule but they may or may not have an appreciable um, uh, neuropharmacological effect that we just can't characterize at this stage. So at this early stage of research, we have no choice. We have to use synthetic psilocybin. Um, but what I would say is that for the, for the people who do have concerns, I would be very interested to know if anybody has ever been in a position to compare the effects of synthetic and naturally extracted psilocybin, let alone synthetic psilocybin and raw or dried mushrooms. Okay, so I'll just put that to you as a, as a little bit of a challenge. Um, I'm fully aware, cognizant and respectful of the, of the issues involved. Um, and I, I do respect the conversation that's taking place and the concerns that people might have. Thank you, Martin, Will Martin, Martin Williams. <laughs> Uh, if you want to find out more information about what PRISM but do, the website is prism.org.au uh, and it's got lots of information on there at the moment um, about uh, uh, various different research uh, proposals and a lot of local news that's been, because uh, there's been a lot of news about PRISM over the past 12 months. It has um, indeed. Yeah, um, yeah the, the announcement, sorry to keep interrupting no, 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 and, and interjecting, but um, the, the announcement of the, of the clinical trial at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, St Vincent's Public, um, was uh, just under two weeks ago on Tuesday, the whatever the date was, um, around the 15th. It was the 15th. Um, and there's been a there's been a great deal of um, very overwhelmingly positive um, media coverage of all of this, and so I'd like to thank and pay great respect to the collaborators that are with me in the in the trial, and thank them very much for their involvement, and thanks uh, St Vincent's for making this all possible, so. and also thanks to our funding partners. The other the other quick plug I'd like to make is just that uh, EGA is continuing to organise conferences, and uh, we're having smaller events for the next year or two until our main uh, conference comes up again in uh, likely to be December 2020. 
But in 2019, which last week they told me was this year, um, we will be having an EGA event on the, the 12th of May is the date that we're considering at the moment. And the theme will be Garden States. And this will be a more of a focus again on um, ethnobotany and, and plant culture and so on. So I would, um, I would invite you all to, uh, to be involved, to come along. Um, you can pick up flyers for EGA, uh, I think here in the space, but also at the APS, the Australian Psychedelic Society um, market stall, which is down at Y7, I believe, down in the market area. So I would, uh, I would invite you all and strongly encourage you to be involved with EGA. We'd love to have you involved. I think you can uh, find a mailing list at entheogenesis.org, uh, so you can sign up there uh, and you'll find uh, or, and all the usual social media channels and uh, YouTube, their YouTube channel uh, has a number of talks from previous years. I think there's about 100 videos, Ronnie, I'm, I'm guessing 80, but it's, it's going up all the time, there's more and more, uh, check them out, high quality, uh, in fact I, uh, we were looking through it and there's uh, only a couple of other channels that have um, that many good talks on, on psychedelics, so that's youtube.com forward slash entheotv. Uh, now uh, Melissa Warner, who is the Executive Officer of Mind Medicine Australia and the co-founder of Australian uh, Psychedelic Society, um, and Melissa is, uh, is hosting uh, Professor David Nutt in uh, Melbourne, and David Nutt uh, was uh, infamous for, in, I think it was 2010, uh, he was uh, the head of the UK government's advisory board uh, on drugs and he made a uh, comparison uh, between ecstasy use and, and what he called equacy, he wrote a paper on it uh, and said that actually it's more dangerous to ride horses, equacy, uh, than it was to take ecstasy, use the statistics, he, he demonstrated it. It was a bit facetious, but um, yeah, the government weren't happy with that. Um, he also said it was safer than alcohol, which is true. Um, they. If the facts didn't suit their political agenda, get rid of the facts. Funnily enough, if he was to say that this week, then he might get a slightly different, yeah. different <laughs> yeah, result. So. Uh, Melissa. Thank you, Nick, for that lovely introduction. And welcome, everyone. It's really nice to see so many people turn up for such an important topic that I'm sure is dear to all our hearts. So we're living... Thanks. We're living during very interesting times when it comes to our understanding of the mind and our awareness of how to grow it and change it and make it more healthy. Neuropharmacology, neuroimaging and psychology has revealed ways to understand the inner workings of the mind and to better navigate our course individually and perhaps collectively. Wisdom practices like meditation are becoming really commonplace, which I think is really uh, a good sign because meditation has been shown to increase compassion and emotional awareness in those who practice regularly. And psychedelics are no longer drugs. They are now medicines, which is something really profound. So we're at this time of innovation for the mind and, and a greater understanding of how to access what we previously could not access, the unconscious mind, and therefore ways to change our lived experience. So who here knows someone who's been affected by mental illness? Yeah, I imagine that really should be everyone because 45% of Australians 
will suffer from a mental illness in their lifetime, which is quite a staggering figure. And currently, one in five have a mental illness. And these statistics are generally rising. So we have this crux point of innovation and understanding, and yet quite a large problem to address. For many people, these experiences can come from the fact that our environments define our lived experience, our reality, our experiences, our storylines. And it can be quite hard to change our storylines. Aldous Huxley said in The Doors of Perception in the 1960s, I believe, that psychedelics were of the plane of art, perpetual creation, and that one day they may find a way out of mental illness for those suffering. And it looks like today that is a statement that is ringing true. Here's a picture of psychedelics in the Wall Street Journal recently, and this uh, phrase you may have heard, which is quite common now, of a psychedelic renaissance, science renaissance. And there's a lot of research to back this up. Psychedelics have been found useful in the treatment of end-of-life anxiety, which is a trial that PRISM is leading at St. Vincent's, also to treat addiction, treatment-resistant depression, and MDMA has reliably been shown to relieve PTSD in sufferers, a treatment that is notoriously difficult to treat PTSD because the window of tolerance for a trauma where you're reactive is so narrow. So this is really profound. I like to use the analogy that psychedelics may allow us to turn off the autopilot in our programs and our learned behaviors. There we go. But what's next? Really, a lot has happened. We had our first psychedelic science trial in Australia. But in terms of treatment and therapy, we really are still at the beginning. Currently, medications that are prescribed generally have to be taken every single day and have an efficacy of a range between 20 to 40%, which is very different from psychedelics, which generally relieve the treatment in one to two doses. So I'm just gonna skip a few slides here. And this is why My Medicine Australia has been born. We're a nexus between academia, government, clinicians, and culture to translate these clinical findings into therapeutic practices and outcomes, which is a really exciting thing to be doing. I think it's something that's really relevant for anyone who attends transformative festivals or has transformative experiences to know the value of context of set and setting of how to think about psychedelics in the context of, of your life. And that's why we'll be launching on the 13th of February at University of Melbourne and I'd be really happy to see some of these faces along there. David Nutt, I, I, if you liked that one-liner about MDMA being as safe as riding a horse. Expect a few more, he's quite a funny guy. 
which is nice. And yeah, we're proud to be a funding partner with PRISM for the trial. And one of our missions is to create a therapist training program in years to come. And these therapists will be able to participate in trials, but also it's lined up to be released when MDMA will become a medicine in the USA. So hopefully we'll be able to train some therapists up in line with that. What I think is really important that becomes clear when you look at the research behind psychedelics is the importance of context, the importance of the environment, the way you think about your experience. Because just as much as a psychedelic can be therapeutic, it can hinder you in the wrong environment, in the wrong set and setting. I find it quite interesting to think about how if we look past this last century, psychedelic use quite likely went right back to ancient Greece, 430 BC, in what was called the Eleusinian Mysteries, where the scholars, leaders, and artists of ancient Greece would meet and go through a seven-day ritual ceremony which culminated with what we is likely to be a chemical that is similar to LSD, derived from wheat? Was it wheat? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so that's quite interesting. It's quite a long heritage this culture has. And I think that spaces like Rainbow Serpent, like Burning Man, are a sort of uh, a very early stage attempt to create spaces where people can come and have safe uh, experiences. I'd, Cicero described, he was a Roman senator, he described the Eltonian Mysteries as the civilizing aspect of ancient Greek culture. I'm not sure if we can yet describe, as much as I love Rainbow Serpent, I can't we're coming for five years straight, I'm not sure if we can quite call these experiences a civilizing aspect of our culture yet. yet. Which is why I think, <laughs> perhaps uh, to some degree, but I think that's why it's really important to think about how, as members of this culture that has this long lineage, how are we representing these profound compounds? Robin Carhart Harris of the Imperial College research team published a paper last year that was titled The Importance of Context in the Psychedelic Experience. And he described how those who are currently using psychedelics have a certain responsibility in this transition, as, we, as Martin spoke about, as we move psychedelics away from the label of drug, away from the label of technically in Australia, Schedule 9 is a poison, to medicine. How do we show up? to that title, to that responsibility. I've been a rule breaker a number of times in my life. And from those experiences, I've learnt that there comes a responsibility of being a rule breaker. And that is, you have to be comfortable with everyone else breaking the rules the way you do. You have to break the rules as if they didn't need to be there in the first place. So with that in mind, I guess, how can we spread that message? to the other participants here. 
to the newcomers. What questions can we ask our friends when they take a psychedelic? What intentions have they set? What goals will they be aiming to reach from the realizations that they have during their experience? If you're going to be having a transformative experience at this festival at some point, I ask you to share your intentions with your friends and those around you. Just a plug for the event. And I think this is important because to help society reconsider their relationship, its relationship with psychedelics, we have to be the exemplars of our own relationship with psychedelics and be the leading example of what that can mean, what that can look like. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. We've got a few questions that have uh, floated up here. If you did have a question, uh, there is still some pen and paper. If you put your hand up, maybe the pen and paper will come to you. Uh, and I've got a few here. I uh, just wanted to say again for anyone that's come along and is wondering what's going on, uh, we're the Australian Psychedelic Society. We have a stall uh, in the uh, market space area, in the middle somewhere, um, along with Students for Sensible Drug Policy who are running their uh, Be Heard Not Harmed campaign uh, to get pill testing uh, not to be such an oppositional thing and just to be a sensible harm reduction strategy that gets implemented. Uh, there's a petition there that you can have a look at. There's some books there. And um, and sitting next to me is Martin Williams, the president of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, PRISM. And you just heard from Melissa Warner from Mind uh, Medicine Australia. Um, bunch of websites. I'm not going to read them all out for you. If you want to find the websites, um, they are at, again, flyers at the stall. Uh, so if you're interested, go pick them up. There's also people there. If you have uh, other, other things that you want to talk about, uh, we're always up for a chat. Um, so a couple of questions. Um, was there one that you were particularly interested in? Probably just go from the top. Yep, from the top. Yeah. Okay, so this question uh, for both of you. As someone who is taking an SSRI for severe anxiety, do you foresee any chances in the future of psilocybin being used to treat sufferers of this or the clinical trials being used mainly for terminal ill patients at the moment? Do you want to touch that? Or? We, can, we both can. There's definitely an interest in creating a trial for treatment-resistant depression or just depression. There is phase two trials happening currently in the US and through Europe for phase two, treating depression with psilocybin. So it's definitely something we'd love to create. I guess it's a matter of a limitation of funding. So, yeah. and with the SSRI, I think Martin can yeah, answer sure. that. Yeah, so, sure. I think the key, the key um, factor here is that, as uh, I'm sure most of you are aware, SSRIs are, are taken daily for an extended period of time, sometimes in some cases for intractable anxiety or depression for, um, for the rest of one's life. Um, and that's really the huge contrast with psychedelic therapy, which is um, more often than not a single administration or maybe two uh, in the context of psychotherapy. And the, the, the benefits really accrue. They, um, they come very quickly and they, they uh, have been found to, to last six months or longer in, in the significant majority of cases. Um, as far as anxiety itself is concerned, that's really going to be interesting to, to explore because um, 
anxiety and depression can be very closely correlated, of course, but they can also be somewhat somewhat separate uh, conditions. And so anxiolytic therapy is, is, is one of the options which unfortunately has attendant um, uh, side effects and the, the concern about um, tolerance and eventual habituation or dependence. Um, Interestingly enough, psilocybin has been used successfully uh, in trials to treat OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder, which is considered to be something of an anxiety related disorder, I believe. Um, and then another one which is, uh, has been um, mentioned to me recently is the potential um, of psilocybin for treatment of, um, of uh, eating disorders as well, which are also considered to be very deep-seated anxiety-related disorders. So I personally would, would really love to see um, research uh, take place in Australia. We potentially could lead the world in this because it's, it's actually a research space that hasn't been explored to any great degree elsewhere. And so I feel that if we can, um, if we can really get things rolling successfully with this initial trial, um, then further trials are going to be, be made much more um, straightforward and accessible. Um, I think we'll have increasing interest from funding partners as well as from uh, researchers in the space uh, and specialist researchers in these particular subfields of mental health. Um, and so I would, uh, I would encourage all of you to participate in the conversation, contribute to the conversation with people you may know in the mental health space. Um, and then perhaps between us we can, we can all bring things forward fairly quickly. What I can say is that um, the, the dam wall appears to be sort of bursting a little bit and there does appear to be some interest already um, in, um, in researching psilocybin for other, uh, other mental health conditions already. Uh, specifically major depressive disorder or straight depression. Um, and so at this end, um, there's another one which I can't tell you about at the moment. But um, there's, uh, there's certainly potential. I feel there's great interest already in the field. Uh, I'm very happy to say that I think we've, we've started to really tread the path and, and that will make it much more straightforward for others to enter the field. Um, and what I can also say is that PRISM is in no way trying to be um, proprietorial or, or dominate or yeah, dominate the space. So um, we feel that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a significant first step taken and we encourage all people to participate in, in research in Australia. Um, staying on psilocybin research, someone is interested in the uh, protocol used around the research. Is that even outlaid yet? I can, I can give it to you in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, as many of you may already be aware, very critical to the success of psychedelic psychotherapy are the are the pre -step, the steps of um, of preparatory therapy, which normally in our case would be a couple of sessions, uh, fairly extended sessions between the participant or the patient. Um, and the clinicians um, to basically to set the scene for the for the therapeutic process. Um, most of these people, uh, particularly people who are um, at end of life um, through terminal illness, um, uh, probably will not be experienced in psychedelic use, and so they will need to be informed of um, of, the of the potential effects, um, potential 
uh, side effects and adverse effects, which generally would include um, some anxiety as the as the experience is starting and unfolding. But then generally that will be resolved. If it's um, if it turns out to be anxiety or any other mental health difficulties that cannot be resolved, then um, it's possible to use rescue medications, but that's generally not preferred. Um, but all of these would be explained to the participant in that in those preparatory sessions. And the importance of these preparatory, preparatory sessions is also to, to establish um, the therapeutic alliance between the um, between the participant and the and the clinical team. In all cases we'll have a male-female dyad team and there will always be they'll always be trained clinical psychologists and or psychiatrists. Um, in each case we will need to have a qualified medical practitioner who is able to um, uh, actually um, prescribe, formally prescribe and administer the drug. Then the, um, the active uh, compound, the psilocybin or placebo session would take place. Um, it would be a full day session starting at eight in the morning and would go through till perhaps um, between four and six in the afternoon. Um, and that would be a, uh, a sort of a, a gently guided psychotherapy session. So that it's really the participant doing the, doing the healing uh, once uh, themselves, him or herself. Um, there would be music um, through, There'll be music through um, headphones. There are a couple of interesting enhancements that we're hoping to, to bring into our clinical trial, which will be very interesting in terms of the music selection and so on. Um, and uh, there'd be normally eye shades so that people who are having strongly visual experiences will, can go through those um, without major distractions. And then, of course, you may be aware that um, equally important are the integrative sessions, which would take place after the active session. And those would be, again, discussions between the participant and the therapists to go through the, um, the individual's experience and then to try and put those in within the context of their own um, broader experience and uh, hopefully achieve the lasting therapeutic outcomes. So that's sort of the, it in a nutshell. Um, we, it, ours is a, um, it's a placebo-controlled, randomised controlled trial with a crossover design, which means that half of our 30 participants will um, receive uh, a placebo of niacin or nicotinic acid, same compound, which basically gives quite a sort of a flush to the face and makes people feel that something might be going on, but it doesn't obviously have the psychoactive effects of psilocybin. Um, and then the other half would, would uh, receive 25 milligrams, which is a, a, pretty, a pretty solid dose of, of psilocybin. Um, so they're more or less guaranteed to have a significant psychedelic experience. Um, and then at a, a point normally around six weeks after that initial session of psilocybin placebo, then there's the crossover so that those people who receive the placebo the first time will receive the psilocybin the second time. They and the therapists won't be aware whether they've had one or the other. And those who receive the psilocybin the first time will get the placebo the second time. And that's... Um, it's a, it's a tricky, uh, slightly tricky aspect of the trial, but it's really um, very important for us to do it that way for the integrity of the research. And uh, 25 milligrams of psilocybin, what does that equate to in grams? Is it around four? It's probably three and a, three and a half to four grams dried of uh, sub, uh, local subaeruginosa. I'm going to uh, combine two questions here because there's a few uh, few people that have asked a similar question, but I suppose it's the other side of the research question. It's the uh, the money side. Uh, the question: uh, 
how do we stop big pharma corrupting psychedelic research? And I'll uh, put this one in here too, uh, going back to the synthetic thing that we talked about before, synthetic psilocybin. Uh, somebody's asking, uh, is, this, is this a bad thing or a good thing in terms of patenting and the way that um, uh, medicine, uh, medicines can be controlled by business? Uh, so thoughts. You don't. This is a this is a big topic. It's a topic that's only starting to uh, to, to balloon recently. I'm, but. I'm champing at the bit with this one. Um, the best way we can keep big pharma out is to demonstrate that psilocybin is the best, most efficacious uh, psychedelic for this, and to um, basically to um, to suggest that analogs or other psychedelic compounds that could be um, could be created or um, synthesized, invented by pharmaceutical companies, um, are not as efficacious in the treatment of these mental health conditions. Because psilocybin is, a, it is a, it's a natural product. It's derived from a from a, a, a mycological source, fungal source. Um, it can't actually be patented. What can be patented, however, by a company, um, and it's generally not going to be big pharma for a reason that I'll explain in just a moment. Um, the, the, uh, if there's a novel, a new method of synthesis um, which makes um, the production of psilocybin cheaper or more effective or more efficient, then that process can be patented, but that doesn't exclude at other companies, including non-profits, from, um, from developing other synthetic techniques. So it's really just protection for the synthetic process at this stage. If the laws finally change so that natural product psilocybin could be used, then there's absolutely no way that that, um, that could um, be protected through the IP system. Now, the reason that I alluded to about Big Pharma not being interested, and this is pretty much the same case for MDMA, um, in fact, almost any psychedelic psychotherapy, um, is that because psychedelic psychotherapy has been shown to be efficacious after only one, two, or maybe three administrations. This is really not at all um, in, uh, of interest to the big pharmaceutical model, uh, commercial model. Their interest is actually in promoting the daily use of antipsychotics, uh, antidepressants, anxiolytics, um, so that they can keep charging the generally the public health system, but often um, the private health systems as well, um, to just keep on dispensing drugs. So I would, I would put it to you that um, developing, exploring and developing psychedelic psychotherapies is probably the best way to keep Big Pharma in check as it happens. And that's also why it's difficult to bring psychedelic medicines to market because there isn't that Big Pharma push. It's a much slower process, which is okay. It's probably better to have them out than, than in. Yeah. One thing I can say is that to bring, for a, for a for Merck or Glaxo, GSK, or one of the global Nevada, so whoever, one of the big um, uh, pharmaceutical companies to bring a totally novel drug to market. Um, and this must, uh, I have to say, this includes the, um, the very preliminary costs of identifying a target, developing the very early, very small molecules, which then can be developed into more effective, larger molecules, which eventually can be turned into drugs. And then, usually this will include the attrition of hundreds, if not thousands, of other candidate compounds, and then eventually involve the marketing, global marketing effort um, for each of the um, the markets for which a drug is to be um, developed or, sorry, commercialised, is in the order of 800,000 to 1 billion US dollars. So these are the realities. This is what a pharmaceutical company budgets to bring a new drug to market. 
we're talking when we're talking about psychedelic uh, psychotherapy we're talking very very small beer by comparison okay so just to give you an idea we're looking at probably in the order of 200 to 500 thousand dollars absolute tops to go through all of the um, clinical phase two and three process to bring something like psilocybin to, to market so those are the kind of numbers we are talking about that's the grim reality that we're living in uh, switching to a slightly yeah yep yep we've got about five minutes left uh, but a question here uh, has there been any research done on derealization disorder and I haven't heard of this so maybe you could talk about what is there a derealization disorder and can you talk talk a bit about it and what would you recommend as a treatment there hasn't been any research into psychedelics to treat de depersonalization or derealization disorder I imagine that would be a, a, a difficult a difficult one and probably might require perhaps even a longer treatment regime. Would you say so, Martin? Yeah, um, one thing I can say is that in general, unfortunately at this stage in clinical research, um, there's a range of, um, of broader psychotic, um, psychotic related disorders and also borderline personality and a couple of these other depersonalization type disorders. Um, and uh, yeah, with, yeah, sorry, with depersonalization, which are, um, explicitly excluded from trials. At this stage, they tend to be just too difficult cases, cases which are too difficult to manage in the therapeutic context. Um, and the likelihood is that the, um, the results will be confounded by that underlying mental health condition. So unfortunately, at this stage, there's, there's not much we can do. So I'm, I'm sorry on behalf of the research community about that. And that's uh, not fun. to say that, that there might be some positive effect, it's just to say that it's a difficult one to study. So that'll come later. Final question, and um, it's, it's important, it's probably a good one to finish on because it's important for everybody. There, there is a lot of excitement over all of this and uh, uh, often I see online, spend far too much time looking at these social media comment threads uh, but a lot of people will be recommending to their friends or to somebody some random stranger on the internet oh take this for you know you've got depression just go take some mushrooms so the question is um, what sort of risk is attached to uh, recommending uh, self-trials to other people uh, side effects uh, related to other mental health conditions that they might have like is it a good idea uh, what should what should people be doing if, if a friend's asking uh, to be pointed in a right direction, I guess. Well, I think a, a first point is if somebody has a mental health condition, they should be seeing, or it's ideal to be seeing a psychologist or a psychotherapist regularly. I don't think that friends, um, even well-meaning friends, should act as a primary caregiver in these circumstances. And there are psychologists who are open to discussing concepts about around preparation and integration. Obviously, they can't give psychedelic therapy, but there are quite a few psychologists out there willing to do the aftermath talks and the preparation talks. So seeking out somebody who, with an open mind, if, you're, if this person's going to be doing it anyway, it's something to consider. Um, but it is, that's a tricky one. Yeah. And always needs caution. Yeah, and and, and certainly that uh, that the um, the comorbid risks of um, as I mentioned before psychotic um, type mental health um, conditions um, potentially could be exacerbated 
by by the use of psychedelics, even just a single single experience. So um, I don't know who or how many people in this audience might have had contact with people who have had very difficult um, experiences that have led to ongoing mental health conditions. But um, anybody who ha who has, um, I'm sure they'd agree with me that. Um, that it's generally a situation that we would prefer to avoid and so this is really the reason that um, that careful screening and at least awareness on the part of, of potential um, self uh, self medicators um, of the risks um, of underlying mental health conditions should be taken into account hey how's it going you're listening to 3cr radical radio Dysphemic Snake King featuring Yanni Trawiki. That is from the Zeus EP, and if you want to get your hands on it, dysphemic.com is the place to go. It is 3CR that you're listening to. This is in Psychedelia. 
And uh, before Dysphemic, you were hearing a panel that was recorded live at Rainbow Serpent Festival. Uh, thank you very much to Brad and the team who uh, recorded the uh, the panel for us uh, at the Lifestyle Village in the cocoon there at Rainbow Serpent Festival. Uh, we do have two more panels that will be uh, uh, broadcast in the coming weeks as well. Um, but that that you just heard from was the Australian Psychedelic Society panel with Martin Williams and Melissa Warner. This is in Psychedelia. Uh, we're just about finished for this afternoon. Only two weeks until the New South Wales election, so we are going to be, um, I suspect next week we'll probably have a bit of a focus on the uh, on the New South Wales election. Uh, do make sure to follow us on social media if you can. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you're on. If you're not on any of those, um, you can find us, 3cr.org.au, uh, find our website, uh, and feel free to get in contact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, as well, uh, don't forget, in uh, May, May, May the 12th, Mother's Day this year, EGA Garden States event. We'll be broadcasting live from it, but do grab your tickets and come along and see the whole event. Uh, entheogenesis.org is the website. They're all a mouthful. Find us on social media. You'll be able to follow along and keep up to date with all that is happening. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon. Queering the Air is up next. See ya. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the Encyclopedia program page. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.